Hi, it's G3, and today we are going to be talking about the biggest topic on the minds of investors everywhere, inflation. But unlike previous episodes where we've covered it by analyzing monetary policy or the Fed, we're going to look beyond those factors and examine it from a public policy and politics perspective. Joining me today is Weiss's Mike Edwards. So please check important disclosures at the end of the episode and stick around for this one, because as usual, Mike doesn't disappoint. And with that, welcome. All right, we are recording and big surprise, we are going to be talking about inflation. I will say that we are recording this episode late Wednesday morning after the CPI print came out. So we are going to try to incorporate that. Mike, fantastic to have you here. Jordy has spoken quite a bit in recent weeks about the threat he sees eventually of deflation rearing its head. Lundy has also spoken about inflation, the Fed, and has done so, I think, in very interesting ways. But we are going to take a different angle on it. We are going to talk about how policy and political forces are also impacting the fight against inflation. And if you could, please set the table for us, given the fact that the CPI number today came out hot. And so obviously everyone is going to be talking about it and thinking about it for certain. Yeah. Nice to be here again, as usual. I would say whether it's relative to the CPI print this morning, I think obviously people were thinking about it beforehand too. Indeed. <laughs> There's Indeed. no shortage of angst on this topic. And to your point, the day-to-day mechanics and gyrations of the market tend to, if we were to anthropomorphize it, to focus on what is the Fed doing here? What's the reaction function, et cetera? I think in many ways, as you and I have spoken about it, Jordy and Lundy, to your point of have highlighted as well. There are many respects in which the Fed's near-term reaction function is pretty well set, as is the market's focus on the inflation versus recession spectrum. So if the monetary policy surface is relatively static, and I think probably debates about 75 bips of the next meeting were put to bed, there's some, you're going to hear even more hawkish rhetoric than that, but consistent hawkishness is table stakes at this point. What I'd like to do is zoom out a little bit from there and think about some of the non-monetary phenomena that have got us to where we are today. And these are really the things that loom over the medium term in some ways larger, but in any event behind where the Fed is acting on that more day-to-day and rates-driven basis. So if we think about how we got here and whether we want to call these policy mistakes or just realities, the thread running through them I think, is that there are political and geopolitical forces at play on a number of factors. So I I would parse things out and say there's really four non-monetary phenomena at work. One of them is the COVID fiscal response globally. But sticking with the U.S. for a second, I mean, quite obviously, we put a fire hose onto (laughs) onto a thing and flooded a whole bunch of adjacent uh, property, as it were, and then maybe unexpectedly, that thing, in this case, COVID and the lockdowns, were resolved much faster than anyone could have possibly anticipated ex ante by the mRNA vaccines. Yes, and and Jordi has made that point as well, and it's one that bears repeating. 
So in a way, there were – I'll come back to the other forces, but in the fall of 2020, right, there were three forces, the Fed turning every dial to 10 as it were, the multiple enormous fiscal packages through – including PPP going through Congress, and then the pharmacological mRNA vaccine as sort of a fiscal answer. Did we need all of those? I mean, ex ante, how could you possibly say no, you know, exercise restraint? But, but ex post, obviously, that was uh, – like I said, we flooded the zone, so to speak. I think the other proximate non-monetary causes, obviously the supply chain uh, backups from COVID, which is a an exogenous force that's not political. But I think if there were any ways, any of the phenomena we could describe as transitory accurately, obviously that word was used very, very wrongly last year repeatedly. But I do think that the COVID bottlenecks have proven or will ultimately prove transitory. But that is distinguishing that from – and a third point, the more longer-term secular phenomenon of deglobalization and we call it re-regionalization. But this is obviously true of creating a number of inflationary forces where we are both adding redundancy – we are interrupting flows in some ways. And this is all happening when it's not just goods that are not moving smoothly border to border. It's also from a labor perspective, immigration. And a lot of this, the backdrop for this is increasingly nationalistic policies in the US, but also elsewhere, including in China, which we should not leave out. So what we've talked endlessly about the US-China decoupling, yep. very intentional, very political, a long-term force, but also very deflationary. And then the fourth thing, maybe it's obvious to everyone, but in terms of energy and commodity input costs, the Ukraine-Russia conflict is a proximal cause to that and a major, major contributor. And obviously, that's a function of geopolitics, not just monetary phenomena. So the thread through all of this is that when we think bigger picture about the long-term inflation forecast. The Fed has moved or the, the market is focused on the Fed's moves day to day, but these and resolution of these questions or changes in the direction of travel, any sorts of inflection points here are going to be massively important over the longer term. And I think this is relevant as we set up and move into the midterms in the US. We've seen a lot of political consequences across the globe from inflation, some in emerging markets, some in on the continent in the UK. And then we also have, obviously, the both regulatory and fiscal capabilities of the latter innings of this Congress in the U.S. and what we can get done. So the backdrop for policy and politics is very important, but it's not necessarily what the market focuses on every day. Perhaps not, but notwithstanding the devil's brew of forces that the market is confronting on a day-to-day -day basis, these other forces that you have described, I think, are very important. If you could, let's just dive a little deeper into some of them where I know you have points of view. Let's talk first about reconciliation and where that stands and how that plays into this. Yeah. So as a reminder, we're, I think, very accurately labeling this reconciliation in people's mind's eye. This might be Build Back Better, which was the old name for it. I've joked that whatever emerges is going to be neither building nor better, but at least it may come back. That's about the only <laughs> reasonable vestige of that acronym. We're now in, uh, in crunch time for this because the authorization to basically get budget matters done with 50 votes in Congress, not 60, expires on September 30th. So the authorization exists and frankly, all of the pieces of an eventual bill all exist. We're now basically assembling – when I say we, I mean 
Democratic leadership in the House and Senate are assembling those into something of a what may be kind of a, a Frankenstein's monster of prior bills at the moment and without necessarily being worth our time to dive into all the specifics there. The change and the reason I highlight the, the, the build back better term is this has gone from being positioned effectively a year ago as more spending and achieving progressive goals, including probably most prominently the climate piece of the green agenda, but also a number of other more redistributive goals and some other constraints like around drug pricing and advancing some of the Obamacare or the ACA subsidies. This was a spending bill a year ago. And today it is an inflation fighting bill. It is basically an austerity bill. That reaction, which at this point is mostly rhetoric because we don't actually have the bill, but will eventually be, if it passes, will, will be law, represents a 180-degree shift over the course of a year. And the common thread through it, which I'm sure you want to ask me about, has actually been Joe Manchin's consistent restraint of spending and effectively the rest of the, the Biden and broader Democratic agenda in Congress. People have referred to Joe Manchin, I think you have referred to Joe Manchin as the most powerful politician in Washington one way or another. What is his angle? And if you could just give us kind of a brief overview of how that angle is going to play itself out potentially, I think that would be very useful because we're constantly hearing his name. He makes more headlines than just about anyone else. But what does he want in your view? Yeah. So, I mean, I've joked and just joking a little earlier about there really effectively being two President Joes. <laughs> yeah. One of them is aspirational, but in at least for legislative matters, Joe Manchin's more powerful than Joe Biden at this point. You could quibble with that maybe to degree, but not kind, that statement. Listen, there is absolutely a not very quiet flotation of his presidential ambitions through a bipartisan lens or his being a cogent centrist, if that makes sense. I think we've talked about before, he has the distinction of being, I believe, the only member of Congress who is more popular from a polling standpoint with the opposite party in his state than with his own party, which is quite a distinction. And I'm not saying that with any sort of disdain, like that's a real accomplishment right. in terms of needle threading, as it were, rhetorically and otherwise. I, I will say this, Manchin has been incredibly consistent with respect to concerns about inflation and being an advocate for austerity, for market thinking, right? Whoever's picture you put on MMT, right, as a politician or theoretician, and then whatever you think the opposite of MMT is, you should put Joe Manchin's <laughs> image on the other end of that spectrum. He's been very consistent in that regard. And that was true. There were some um, personnel and personality issues that where things got inflamed in his discussions with the White House in December where this all fell apart. But – the bill as originally conceived was never going to be as big as the Biden administration and others wanted because of his restraint. And I think you could realistically say it's probably a good thing from the standpoint of overstimulating an already, as we now know, it's easy to say this ex post, but as we now know in our, a hot economy, it's probably a good thing that he stood his ground, so to speak, accidentally or otherwise. And now we're in a position, what is he after? I mean, I think there's a component of consistency. There's a component of brand building and putting that forward. And I think that there is no question that he will push further into leadership positions within the Democratic Party, including 
floating this run for president, which you don't do unless and until Biden is not the candidate, which he will be until the very moment that he says he's not. The reason I think it's important to highlight all of that as we're watching the twos and fro's over the coming weeks and potentially months is what ground he decides to stand and what he gives up on is actually going to be pretty important symbolically. And he's made it very clear that this bill has to be inflation fighting. I believe his rubric here is that it should be two to one pay fors to spending, meaning we raise twice the amount of revenue as we're spending. If I would acknowledge that most of the revenue raiser, a lot of the revenue raisers have a lot of fluff in them. So nominally two to one probably really gets you something more like one to one, which is probably a joke he gets as well. Right. But I think that's number one. Number two, that he being, which I didn't even mention in terms of what's he after, he is the senator for West Virginia, which is a coal burning state. And the legacies in employment and otherwise of the transition from fossil fuels to clean energy is particularly impactful there. So when we're dealing with a bill that is jointly creating energy production incentives and clean energy tax incentives, he wants to make sure that there's no force applied vis-a-vis fossil fuels, that there are incentives, and that, but that it's gentle. I'm dramatically oversimplifying as usual. So that's another important point because he is senator for West, from West Virginia. And then I think the other is, frankly, he wants broad support for this if it passes, but he wants to be the lead dog here. And so in terms of timing and things like that, we've talked about, I mentioned that it has to be done by September 30th. The conventional wisdom is it has to be done by the August recess, which gives us just a couple of weeks here. So that's why I say we're in crunch time. And the thing that will determine whether or not we can get done in the next couple of weeks is some combination of the negotiants being COVID free, which believe it or not is an issue once again, and and Manchin's own timing here as a negotiating lever. Got it. Mike, that's really interesting. I want to shift to another state in the same general neighborhood, Ohio and ask you specifically about the CHIPS Act and how that plays into sort of those structural forces at work that politicians are trying to combat as it relates to inflation and the like. What's happening there in your view? Yeah. So we'll talk about the, and the CHIPS Act is a subcomponent of a bigger concept that's referred to as USICA or the Bipartisan Innovation Act, which is a China competition bill that includes incentives to build fabs. And that's what the CHIPS Act component is, is fab building for semiconductors. So basically that is one of the biggest pieces of spending that we'll contemplate in the near future. The thread running through both of these questions is twofold. One of them, a broad acceptance that on behalf of both parties, the Democrats are going to lose the House in the midterms and thus that there's not really a compelling reason for Republicans to play ball with bipartisan things or spending bills or anything else like that. And obviously the reconciliation moves to the forefront because it's done unilaterally. The second implication of that is that I've said this, Jordy said this, I think it's a reasonable mantra is markets like gridlock. And in the the case of inflation here, you're already seeing spending restraint as a result of the anticipation of at least the House changing control here. And so coming to the CHIPS Act, basically what's happened is something that was, as we've stipulated many times, easy to agree upon on a bipartisan fashion that we have to do something about China. China is a – you know, we could frame that statement in many ways – it's very unlikely that we're going to actually have something happen during this Congress or at least before the midterms on this both spending side and there are a couple of other components to it. But the chips bill, like building fabs in Ohio and this sort of thing, is not something that McConnell and others are going to play ball on 
because they don't need to. They don't want to give Biden a win. And they would rather have these bills take on the contours that they want and they control once they at least control the House, if not the House and the Senate. So I would say that the possibilities for this thing eventually passing would be maybe in the lame duck as part of an appropriations bill, which happens from time to time. And you can have some tax extenders associated with it as well. Or it could take until well into next year with a completely new Congress. And frankly, the administration, Gina Raimondo in particular, have more or less conceded this point. And in doing it, back to our discussion on reconciliation, the Democrats are trying to label it as we need to both lower drug prices, which is the thing we know this reconciliation bill will do at this point, and also do something about China. Why won't our Republican colleagues play ball? And the Republicans are doing sort of a, a fairly typical, at least from McConnell, stall tactic, but basically saying that if the Democrats are going to do reconciliation, we're not going to allow the CHIPS Act to move forward and USIC and everything else. Because why would we, really? To, I don't know, to save the Ohio Senate race for them? It's a fair question. I guess it's very spinnable in both directions. I would tell you that I think my own assessment is that the Control of the Senate is more or less a coin toss right now. I know that sounds like a cop-out, but to be clear, I think consensus is something like, I don't know, call it two-thirds, three-quarters probability that Republicans take the Senate, and I'm materially lower than that. However, I don't think the Ohio race is pivotal there. Or let me put it a different way. If Tim Ryan wins that race, then there's no doubt that Democrats will control the Senate, right? Because you would assume that the national mood is in a place where Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, I mean, maybe even North Carolina, like I even think North Carolina is, is potentially as competitive as in some ways as Ohio. It's a weird race. J.D. Vance is a, you know, not a traditional candidate. And, but having said that, I, I don't think that this is a topic in that race. I don't think it is the topic. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I want to end by talking about some recent Supreme Court cases and how those will impact the structure of our economy and therefore the battle against inflation and, and the like for some time to come. I think everybody would agree that Dobbs v. Jackson has been the most watched and talked about case, but I know that you have a thought on another case that is very significant. And this case, which is one of the most consequential decisions in quite a long time, also in some ways, I was going to say ironically, but that's a misuse of that phrase, like Dobbs is really a case about states' rights, is West Virginia versus EPA and the implications on the regulatory authority of the federal government and particularly the agencies of the federal government. I'm going to describe this in a second and we'll kind of get into the implications, but just to be explicit about the thread through all of this. Right? And coming back to markets and inflation for our listeners, what we've seen happen in many of the other functions of legislatively, is what we've talked about thus far, is significant restraint and a pivot from basically from expansionist spending to austerity. We've also seen that in the sort of inevitability of the Democrats losing control of Congress and thus Biden's ability to get things done, whether those things be inflation fighting or other priorities, not happening through Congress, but likely happening through the various agencies and through executive order. And so 
some of the importance of the West Virginia versus EPA case and its implications on that authority is the very reasonable expectation that the remaining years of the Biden administration are going to see action through exactly the channels that West Virginia versus EPA opines on, so to speak, or restrains. And so as we think about where austerity is coming to bear, this is another and another very important aspect, which is the inability going forward to at least fully follow through on a lot of executive priorities. And I agree with you that because of the very appropriate and regardless of your political viewpoint, very appropriate attention on Dobbs and the implications of Roe, that's sucked up a lot of the jurisprudential oxygen in the room. But this is a very important case as well. And what it really – sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say it, in, in many ways it's a sleeper case. Like I wonder if Dobbs had not been the headliner case, I wonder if a lot more attention and passions would have been conveyed in kind of the public spaces about this case because of its far-reaching implications. I think that's a very reasonable thesis. I would obviously, you know, when you say sleeper case, I mean, this is a case that this Supreme Court clearly wanted to hear. And to summarize what it was, to just to back up that point, this is basically an implementation of the Clean Air Act as defined under Obama, but not ever really defined as promulgated under Obama, but not actually being live as policy because the Trump administration reversed it. Biden didn't really take it up. It's really a dormant issue, but significant jurisprudentially. Because it allowed the court, and in this case, this was Roberts writing the majority opinion, 6-3 decision, basically determining and leaving a lot of things vague and open-ended that agencies, in this case the EPA, but by implication the federal agencies, cannot interpret statute around what are known as major questions, a major questions doctrine. And it leaves relatively vague the definition of terms like major question and extraordinary and things like that. So it's pretty potentially wide in scope, requiring that Congress specify exactly how statutes are to be implemented, in this case around restraining emissions and things the EPA was doing in that, in that regard. But you can imagine very easily this applying to actions the FCC might take or the CFPB might take or the FTC might take, many of which are at least as one would think and was probably a base case even just weeks or months ago, how this administration will act in the future. In fact, you and I were talking about other things, the regulating crypto. There's a disclosures around, forcing disclosures around environmental issues and other things. There's a whole host of authority that, that, that effectively agencies interpret and this case is challenging their authority to do so without specification from Congress and empowering states to make that interpretation where the federal government doesn't. So, so given the fact that gridlock has become the kind of de facto posture of Congress, right? Yeah. Because we have a divided country yep. and therefore we have a divided Congress. And now the various agencies of the executive branch are less empowered to essentially set policy, it essentially paves the way for more gridlock for as far as the eye can see, so long as the nation is evenly divided, right? Yes. And I think you put it perfectly and much more concisely than I was, which is restraint and gridlock are the flavors du jour in our politics. That is significantly deflationary over a long term relative to the path ex ante. And in terms of that not changing, like I suppose a few cycles from now, albeit very unlikely given 
gerrymandering and other things. You could imagine a Democrat president and Democrats taking control of the Congress and the House and spending it like that. We're a long way off from that, most likely, given that. But with respect to the West Virginia EPA decision, that's not getting reversed. <laughs> I mean, this is right. there's no opportunity to challenge this. That's it. This is a major use the colloquial term pantsing of federal authority in the executive in an enormous way. And it's returning a lot of regulatory prowess or at least establishing that the more unconstrained, unless by an act of Congress, regulatory prowess is with the states. But on that note, though, let me just push back a little bit on your saying that this is structurally deflationary over the long term. As we were talking about, California is the biggest state in the nation. California has enormous power over companies because those companies want to cater to the California market. So are we going to see Californication of a lot of policies in a de facto way because they're the biggest market? As a California native and as a Red Hot Chili Peppers fan, <laughs> I appreciate the dropping of that term. I think the answer is in some places, maybe. And I think it's a very, very important and subtle point that you're making, and I want to tease it out for everyone. But I do think there's going to be more, like significantly more dispersion between states. And so before we go to California, I would just say that things are working in both ways. If you want to think about, you know, sort of typical policy term, there's, there's both a race to the bottom and a race to the top with respect to regulatory. There will be states acting like West Virginia did in West Virginia EPA that will go after other regulations in other aspects to to diminish federal regulatory authority in various places. Like those are inevitable. Their trains left the station. Yes. Right. And so that's what the I'm oversimplifying, but that's what the red state attorneys general will be up to. Okay. The blue states and California being the, the largest and most impactful among them are already taking a race to the top approach, which is what you're this Californication concept of we've seen it in emission standards in cars. We've seen it in data privacy with California adopting standards similar to Europe and forcing – I mean it helps that most of the tech companies are located in California other than those that have moved to Texas, highlighting this phenomenon in another way I suppose. Right. But you're also – it is not at all a coincidence and we'll say sort of two things about California and Gavin Newsom in a second. But it's not a coincidence that on the same day this decision came down, Gavin Newsom signed the single-use plastics – law within California, which basically requires recyclable content over, I don't need to go into it, but over, you know, various periods of time to get more recyclable content. The thinking there being, to your point on Californication, Procter & Gamble is not going to make two shampoo bottles in the U.S., one for red states, one for blue states, even though they're not required to everywhere. If it's a California standard or if it's the standard in Washington State and Illinois and New York and other relatively populous places, then they'll adhere to that standard and so be it if it's a little more expensive in other places and that sort of thing. That is basically having competing standards state by state. You're going to see more of that tension, but it's obviously sort of whack-a-mole in many respects. It has to be topic by topic. There's not anywhere near the wherewithal of the federal agencies sitting in Sacramento or sitting in Albany. So the other thing that's happening is the politicization of this very point. And the second thing I was going to say about Gavin Newsom is related to exactly this. It is not a coincidence that you're getting him running, hey, look how great it is in California ads in Florida because he's picking a fight with Ron DeSantis. And this is exactly the ground on which I think it is reasonable to predict that the 2024 presidential may be fought. 
And I think that's actually pretty important. And Newsom in this case, I don't have an opinion one way or other on the man, but he's taken a long view at least. And he's certainly got some pep in his step in terms of getting out there and getting this message out and putting his face on it. So states battling states, sharpening their elbows. Well, governors battling governors in this case. Fair enough. That is right. So governors, (laughs) thank you very much. Governors battling governors to position themselves accordingly, all within the backdrop of an inflation issue that, at least for the time being right now, continues to alarm and animate the public dialogue. And of course, the markets are also very much animated by it as well. Yeah. And I think the way I would summarize that is to say, talking about governor versus governor, the federal government has gone from lighting this fire to, from the Fed's perspective, trying to put it out. But from, as you very rightly said, moving into a gridlock position and with austerity being this, you know, the flavor the rhetorical flavor, very much being a force in the opposite direction now from where it was. And I think that is another underappreciated phenomenon by markets. A ginormous cluster, and I won't say the last part of that, but that's what it sounds like. Well, I would say that's the glass half empty version in terms of how our politics works and things like that. The glass half full version, and I, I really mean this earnestly, is it does show that in our constitutional system, there are sharp reactions to bad economic and other policy outcomes and the circumstances we face ourselves with gridlock is a sort of a rational response, as it were, to overexertion of authority. I would say, lest this seem politicized in either direction, a lot of the things we talked about as being major causes of the inflation wave we have right now probably originated as much, if not more, during Trump's presidency as during Biden's. But Biden is very rightly getting blamed for it because when you're president, every, you know, the buck stops here and that sort of thing. But I don't think it's a political failure. I think as on a systemic level, I think it is actually evidence of notwithstanding, I, I think you and I both probably have plenty of concerns about election integrity and questions like that when the Jan 6 hearings going on and all of those sorts of questions. But zooming out from an economic standpoint, it does show us that there's a reaction function that does work. Perfect. Thank you for ending on that positive note, Mike. I I appreciate it. I try. All right. Take care. Thanks, G3. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. The information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investments. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.